an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me Martinez. Just as we were getting used to life in the red tier, word is we're moving on up and orange a glad. That's right. As early as tomorrow, L.A. and coincidentally Orange County could be even more open than we have been in a year. Plus, Ken Powers got an Oscar nomination for writing One Night in Miami. He also wrote Pixar's Soul, nominated for Best Animated Feature. We'll hear from him ahead on Take Two. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up, as former police officer Derek Chauvin stands trial for the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, we take a look at police reform here at home. Building trust takes time, and you cannot build that trust unless you have a truth and reconciliation component. More on our check-in with the LAPD in just a moment. But first, L.A. and Orange counties have officially met the criteria to move into the less restrictive orange tier by tomorrow. Plus, coronavirus vaccine eligibility is about to open up to those over 50. All this while the director of the CDC warns of, quote, impending doom. Now, for what all this means, we have one of our trusted medical experts back with us. Dr. Robert Kim Farley is a professor at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and specializes in infectious diseases. Doctor, welcome back. Thank you very much, Ed. Good to be back on your program. All right. First, uh, we just learned today that L.A. and Orange counties are now eligible to advance into the orange tier, and that would allow the reopening of bars for outdoor services, loosen capacity limits at movie theaters, museums, restaurants, gyms, a, a lot more. Uh, still, county officials get the final word on when and to what extent uh, the restrictions could be eased. Doctor, what else would change, and what's your reaction to us uh, being possibly in the orange tier as soon as tomorrow after we just got out of the purple one into the red one? Well, my first reaction is excitement. I think we all are yes, ready for yeah. seeing this progress. So that's great uh, news, A. Um, you are correct uh, that on, uh, actually, it's going to be Wednesday of this uh, week uh, being eligible here in Los Angeles County to move to that tier. However, it's also subject to LA County Department of Public Health uh, decision through modification of the health officer order. So we'll be hearing about that, I'm sure, in the very near future. Uh, typically, L.A. County has been following uh, the guidance of the state. So I would anticipate that uh, we would be on that uh, pathway towards this uh, new relaxation restrictions, which means, as you also mentioned, uh, restaurants, movies, uh, churches are going to go from about 25 percent to 50 percent capacity. Indoor gyms going from 10 percent to 25 percent capacity. Retail uh, from their 50 percent now to virtually no limit, although yeah. people still will need to be wearing masks. Amusement parks going to be open up 25% capacity. So all of these are very exciting. Doctor, I got to admit, so I, I went driving this weekend um, just to the bank, you know, just things I would, I would, I've been normally doing whenever I need to. Uh, and there were a lot more people out on the streets. There were also a lot more cars on the road. And I got to admit, 
I felt a little stressed. I felt a little anxious that, you know, because I've been used to it not being this way uh, for a long time now. Is there any uh, any fear on your end too, too much too soon? Well, I think in California, we are doing measured uh, approaches, tailored, uh, using this tiered system that counties basically earn a less restrictive tier when they show that they've been able to reduce levels of community transmission and reduce levels of positivity rates uh, in the testing that they are doing. So I think that's all good. But as been uh, noted, you know, uh, in other states, uh, I think that uh, I do have a lot more concern about uh, the reduction of restrictions, you know, no masking, things like this. This is just too soon um, at this time to be doing this, you know, laissez-faire, anything goes attitude. But I think in California, we are not going that route, which is encouraging to me. I'm a chronic worrier, Dr. Tier. I've been that way <laughs> my whole life. So that's, that probably accounts for that. Now, there have been a lot of headlines in recent days about case numbers ticking up uh, across the U.S., prompting the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as I mentioned, to warn us of, quote, impending doom. Um, that is uh, pretty alarming to hear. Can you put that into context for us? Yes, I think the impending doom is what she is feeling uh, when she looks across and sees certain states, for example, completely dropping mask mandates or completely opening up all indoor venues, again, without masking, um, sports venues totally packed. These are the things that I think public health officials everywhere, including the director of the CDC, um, are alarmed about because we are so close to getting to the end point of having vaccine for everyone. And it's just so sad to think that we might have to go through a fourth surge um, in some places uh, before we can achieve better uh, herd immunity levels. Now, just last week, I was talking about the robust vaccination campaigns and levels of immunity rising. What can we attribute this rise in cases to then? Well, I think the very problem that uh, we're mentioning about people perhaps totally pandemic fatigued, going out without masking, uh, without proper physical distancing, especially in those states now that have opened up such that uh, people can go out partying and uh, very close mixing of folks. So I think that that now is uh, attributing to this rise of cases that we are beginning to see nationwide, which which is alarming. Um, and so I think we need to realize that uh, this is something that we need to monitor, and hopefully some of those places that start seeing surges returning will dial back and reinstitute some of the public health measures that really perhaps were relaxed too soon in other places outside of California. Considering, Doctor, that uh, if things are going to open up, they're going to open up whether someone personally wants them to or not. Is there any behavior or a certain activity that for you gives you pause that, uh, that maybe, maybe you advise for people to, to avoid if they possibly can? Yes, a, that's a good question. I think that, uh, firstly, the idea of the increased non-essential travel that's happening. I believe uh, yesterday they saw more people at LAX than they have at any other time um, during the pandemic. Admittedly, it's still about half of what it was uh, a year, uh, more than a year ago uh, before the pandemic. But this uh, idea of increased non-essential travel, this is a great way of spreading, in my mind, variants from other countries, things like this. So I think that that's one thing that is concerning to me. The dropping of the mask mandates, again, of uh, probably the most concern in my mind. And then the idea of opening up 
crowded indoor venues, uh, which uh, is just a recipe for community spread. We're talking to Dr. Robert Kim Farley, an epidemiologist with UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Um, last week, there was uh, positive news about the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, proving effective in trials, but then regulators said it was uh, not a complete report. Uh, doctor, can you remind us what the issue was and what the latest update is on AstraZeneca? Yes, uh, I think the one thing to realize is that there was some uh, changes, you know, from 79% to 76% of vaccine efficacy. I think this was primarily based upon the date span that was being used uh, for looking at vaccine efficacy uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, what was the cutoff dates used. I think the important thing to realize is that uh, this vaccine has a 76% efficacy for any type of disease, but virtually totally protective for, you know, severe hospitalizations and deaths. So I think that's the really important thing to realize um, about this vaccine. So I, I think it's going to be a good vaccine. We'll see when we see all the data that'll be made public and available uh, when it's being presented uh, for emergency use authorization through, to the Food and Drug Administration. At that time, we'll have a, a better chance to really look at the data. When might that be? Any sense on when that could be? Because I you know, keep hearing how you know you get a, a, another vaccine added to the mix that's already in the United States, that could actually be a real big game changer. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's anticipated that uh, AstraZeneca is going to be applying for this emergency use authorization to the FDA in uh, April. So I think that's going to be coming shortly. And again, it will be welcome news. Now, about vaccinations, remind us, doctor, how long it takes after that second shot, that second shot until someone is fully protected against uh, the coronavirus. So your immune system takes about two weeks, uh, A, to, to mount its full response to having been challenged by an antigen, which is what the vaccines are. So um, basically, you get your full protection uh, that you're going to get. Remember, again, vaccine isn't 100% protective, but the maximum that you're going to get, it'll be about two weeks after your last dose. Now, um, more people are getting vaccinated, but not everyone in a household necessarily will be eligible at, at the same time. People who are vaccinated have been have been telling us that they can mingle without masks in small groups. But I mean, should we do that? I mean, if say if your spouse or roommate has not received the vaccine yet, uh, how how ripe for danger is that? Yes, yeah, so I think a couple of things. One is that obviously if you are circulating and being with someone else who has been vaccinated, that's kind of the no-brainer at the moment. That makes sense. Uh, there's no problems there. It's when you start mixing those who've been vaccinated with those who have not. I think there's a couple of issues here. One is who is the person that has not been vaccinated? If they are someone still that uh, should have been vaccinated, for example, that they have a pre-existing medical condition but haven't been able to get an appointment, well, you might want to uh, still keep up the, the guard, so to speak, with masking and some physical distancing with them so that you wouldn't be a possible source of transmission to them. These vaccines, we're going to know more in, in a little bit of time, but some initial studies are showing that perhaps uh, as much as 90% of even the disease uh, that is uh, infection is also being prevented, which case that your chance of infecting someone else is quite low. But still, if that person has a high risk of disease, you don't even want to take that 10% chance if you can avoid it. Then with positive cases ticking back up in some parts, but also more people getting vaccinated every single day, I'm wondering how far are we, you think, from any sort of real herd immunity? Yes, you know, uh, herd immunity, or I kind of like to call it uh, community immunity. Since I forgot, that's exactly, that's the uh, best way to put it. That's right, we're not uh, <laughs> cattle. We're not all cows. Right. Uh, but uh, herd immunity is the correct uh, <laughs> epidemiologic term. So 
I think a couple of things to realize is that uh, community immunity is basically at a time when you ultimately can stop all community transmission because so many people are in fact uh, vaccinated or have natural immunity due to have had the disease. Um, that probably with this virus and its uh, transmissibility is going to be in the 80-85% capacity. Now, even with uh, saying that, I think the realization is that you know we have now some of these new variants and some of these variants are even more transmissible than the garden variety, if you will, of COVID. And so that means that the uh, community vaccination rates are going to have to be even higher to make sure we get to a point of true community immunity with these variants. I think also another thing to realize is that the community immunity is not something that is necessarily homogeneous in the sense that not everybody is being vaccinated at the same rates, or maybe even those who may be refusing vaccination or having vaccine hesitancy. So if we end up with pockets of very low vaccine, even though the average in the community might be high, that then is again set up for when the virus gets into that pocket of unimmunized or very low immunization, okay. you'll have you know outbreaks appearing in those communities. So we also have to realize that you know because of the fact we have still vaccine hesitancy, um, hopefully reducing in numbers, yeah. but also because we haven't gotten those people under 16 yet vaccinated. That's right. We still have a long ways to reach community immunity. Forgot about those kids. That's UCLA epidemiologist, Dr. Robert Kim Farley. Doctors, always thank you very much. My pleasure, Abe. The pandemic has changed work life for pretty much all of us, even for a high-profile athletic trainer now helping COVID-19 patients recover from long-term symptoms. From the California Report, Amanda Font brings us this story. first one I really started working with uh, was the 49ers, Jerry. As in Hall of Famer Jerry Rice. Derrick Dees, Justin Sapolo, a lot of the offense and defensive players. Harvey Shields has been working with professional athletes for years. San Francisco Giants players like Barry Bonds and Willie McCovey. Barry Bonds stands alone. U.S. Olympic ski team gold medalist Peekaboo Street. But his clients also include the former king of Tonga and Costco warehouse workers. Because Harvey is not the guy you call in if you're trying to bulk up. What I do is not a personal trainer. Uh, my, my title is a corrective exercise specialist. He tries to prevent injuries by watching how people move, their posture, and making adjustments. And if they do end up hurt, he's there to help them recover. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit people close to Harvey started to get sick. I haven't had it myself. I've had friends of mine, and I think that's also uh, affected me. I had friends of mine that was in Mississippi that died from the COVID. Then he started getting calls from clients struggling with COVID symptoms that just wouldn't go away. And you're going to take arms down, come back up to here, take your hand out. They asked me to, to see what I could do to help them. Then I started helping. I said, ha ha, this is something that will work. And when you bring your arm down, you want to deep breathe with it. Ready? He started doing online sessions from his home in Menlo Park. He charges clients based on their needs and how much time he spends with them. I came up with a different approach and deep breathing. 
some of the people that I've been working with, you know, they're still having these residuals after six months after having it, initial having the COVID. And bring it down and relax. So what did you feel when you was doing that? My shoulder feels better, feels looser, and my chest is warm and stretched. Exactly. So you can feel it more. You're feeling now opening it up, right? So yep. what, I had probably almost every symptom that there was. The worst symptoms for me was a fever, a constant fever that would just never go away. Joni Girado has been a preschool teacher for 32 years, even during the pandemic. She says she wasn't super worried about working with kids, but in mid-December, she got COVID, and it hit her hard. It's like there's a band around your chest, and it's just sucking in your lungs. She says things were pretty touch and go for a while. Joni called the emergency room a few times when she was really struggling to breathe. My oxygen levels had deteriorated. I think I was, I think my lowest was 91, 92. Um, they say to come in around 90. But her 17-year-old daughter, Hannah, also had COVID. And she says she didn't want to leave her alone, so she toughed it out. With the constant fever and aches, she was hardly able to sleep. I, I got a call from Harvey on a Saturday night. It was, it was probably the sixth night. Joni met Harvey about 10 years ago, when his daughter was enrolled in her preschool in Menlo Park. She's since moved to Folsom, but the two are still in touch. When he found out she was sick, he called her, wanting to help. And I was like, no, you can call me tomorrow. Like, I really don't feel good. And he was like, nope, get up. Harvey convinced her to get onto her computer so he could teach her some exercises to help open up her lungs. And Joni says she felt better. So what you do, you want to... But it's a slow. It was kind of amazing. My my oxygen level went back up. I think it was about 95, 96 after like 20 minutes. And that night was the first night that I actually like slept. Up to here, you're going to take it out slowly here. During their video sessions, Harvey usually stands in his backyard, surrounded by trees. He demonstrates the movement slowly, checking in with Joni to see how she's feeling. Sometimes Joni's daughter, Hannah, joins. She runs track, and Harvey wants to make sure she doesn't have any lasting effects. Joni says part of what makes her feel better is just who he is. He's reassuring and intuitive. You got to feel the connection, watching me feel my energy, allow my energy and your energy connect. Ready? You're going to come up. And he's just like a kind, caring human being who was taught at an early age to, to just give back to other people. That's kind of Harvey's personal philosophy. The greatest success in the world is being in the position to help someone else. Harvey grew up in a small town in Louisville, Mississippi. He says even though his family didn't have a lot, his mother and father still did what they could to help people in their community. And my mother would always, always told me that it's not about you, it's about helping others. That was the most important thing that she should be focusing on. Even though we was poor, that she said that there was always someone out there was worse off than you. Harvey says his mother's lesson is a big part of the reason he's doing what he's doing now. Someone asked me, what's the difference between helping a professional athlete prepare for the Super Bowl and what you're doing? And I told him that preparing a person for the Super Bowl, if they don't win the Super Bowl, they have next year to try to win again. But these people don't have that next year to worry about. They, they have to make sure this is done now to make sure that they're able to survive now because next year not promised to them. He wants to give people hope so they can keep fighting 
and get better. For The California Report, I'm Amanda Font. All right, it is day two of the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis. You know, since the death of George Floyd, we've had different conversations here on Take Two about what criminal reform and police reform in Los Angeles would look like. We've had different people on, different experts, and a lot of them agreed on one particular program that's being run by the person we're going to hear from next. She's uh, coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming at kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. The murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin continued today. Chauvin is accused of killing George Floyd, who died after the officer was filmed pinning his knee on Floyd's neck. The effects of that incident shook the country and the world, and here in Los Angeles, it prompted a massive outcry for reforms within our own police department. Now, many people demanded a new relationship between L.A.'s law enforcement and communities of color. But what exactly does that look like? We're going to continue our series of conversations with experts and stakeholders, each giving their take on what's ahead. And today we have with us Imada Tingarides, Deputy Chief of the LAPD's Community Safety Partnership Bureau. The CSP has come up with quite a bit during our conversation around reform this year. It's been pointed as an example of what policing should really look like. So when I spoke with Tingarides last Last week, she explained how this initiative began. The Community Safety Partnership Program was started in 2011, and it was the brainchild of civil rights attorney Connie Rice. She worked alongside then LAPD Police Chief Charlie Beck to address some of the trauma and violent crime that was occurring in our public housing developments in South Los Angeles and East Los Angeles. The primary focus of the Community Safety Partnership Program is to place dedicated police officers, the same police officers, in a community for a minimum of five years to build relationships, address quality of life issues, and really implant themselves into the day-to-day lives and fabric of the community. You mentioned how it was started in 2011 back then, so now 10 years ago. How much uh, would you say community concern over uh, police use of force uh, was, was part of this at all? There has always been a community concern regarding uses of force and relationships between communities that have a high volume of crime and low poverty levels. And in 2006, especially in the Watts community, there had been a lot of back and forth shootings and the community demanded a change and a difference from the council district members, as well as the police officers that were working in the community of Watts. An entity called the Watts Gang Task Force was formed. And that meeting really was a platform for the community to hold law enforcement accountable and vice versa. When that Watts Gang Task Force was created, we began dialogue. We had transparency. 
we had asked for forgiveness and we listened and we began to understand the concern, the trauma and the mistrust that community had for police officers. That group working alongside the schools and gang intervention workers really set the platform for the Community Safety Partnership Program to begin because we had begun to trust one another and come up with solutions collectively to police different in the community. Take us through a, a typical day of what an officer of yours might do and who they might uh, come in contact with. The Community Safety Partnership officers start their day off by walking footbeats in their public housing developments, around the schools and shopping centers, and really engaging with the existing resources and community members themselves. A typical day could be an officer talking to a kid, throwing a football, then doing a school check, checking in with our crisis intervention workers to see if there's any conflict going on in the community. Then the officer may be coaching a football team at the end of the day or responding to a radio call in their neighborhood engagement area. The officers that are assigned to our neighborhood engagement areas in our CSP program have really built relationships, understood the tone and the culture of the community, and really start their day off addressing anything and everything that the community may ask of them. What would you say is a a concrete example of how this has worked successfully in the past? There was a young child that lived in Jordan Downs housing development. And one day he was outside and he was ran over and killed. One of our community safety partnership officers went to the location to render aid to this young child and the child passed away in his arms. The family reached out to us and had invited our CSP officers to take part in the funeral, to carry the casket, to release a dove. And when we went to the gravesite, the family actually asked for the officers to turn on their lights and sirens when they lowered the child's casket into the ground because of the love and respect that they had developed for the CSP officers. There's countless stories where our officers have been invited to quinceañeras, to graduations, to weddings, to family dinners, to have pozole on a Sunday. I really have seen a difference in the interactions and the trust that have been built through this community policing philosophy. Tell us about that trust that you've been seeing, because I can imagine, though, that there are going to still be a lot of people who, no matter what, are going to have trouble or difficulty trusting the police. And I understand that. And that is a historical um, perspective that CSP is working really hard to change. And building trust takes time. And you cannot build that trust unless you have a truth and reconciliation component of that. And you may not agree with some of the actions or some of the response from law enforcement. But if we can sit down at the table and have dialogue and conversation and understanding, then we can begin at least to view things um, from different lenses rather than just having one biased opinion about one another. 
We're talking to Amada Tingarides, Deputy Chief of the LAPD's Community Safety Partnership Bureau. This uh, program is several years old. You mentioned 2011 is when it started, but it only got a, a boost recently because of the protests. Um, why do you think it didn't get as much attention or love in the past compared to now? UCLA conducted a study on this program, and they looked at two of our CSP sites. They looked at Nickerson Gardens in South Los Angeles and Watts, and they looked at Ramona Gardens. And what that study found was crime had decreased in some of the most violent communities that the CSP program was implemented in, but trust had been built. And so after the study and post the incident of George Floyd, Chief Michael Moore made the decision to implement the Community Safety Partnership Bureau. This type of policing is what people are asking for across this country. And it's not necessarily a narrative of defunding the police, but reinvesting and refunding in our communities, working alongside law enforcement, but placing resources and funding towards mental health, towards the food desert, having economic development and job training in our communities, having a robust reentry system to accept individuals that are coming out of prison so they have a safety net and that we can build leadership and they can give back to their community. Well, you mentioned the phrase defund the police. Um, during the debate over the LAPD and its budget, a lot of activists use that phrase. And, and I, I talked to a few. Uh, the, the one that jumps out to me the most uh, is uh, Melina Abdullah from Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, where she was talking about taking all the funds away from police officers and the LAPD specifically. Do you understand where that sentiment comes from? I don't agree with that narrative. This program is not about the police shouldering the responsibility for all of these things, but being a partner and working alongside the other social systems to make our community safe. I believe that when we reinvest in communities and work alongside of law enforcement to address some of these conflicts and issues, that we'll have a safer community. We're utilizing a public health and a public safety model to work in our communities. And when we have site safety plans and we seek and sit down with our community safety advisory councils to come up with these site safety plans, then everyone has a role in making it safe in our communities. What's the grand plan for this community safety partnership? Because it sounds like like something that all officers throughout the whole city should be mimicking, whether they're a CSP officer or not. I mean, building relationship within the community you would think is something that uh, is a plan that uh, could be used all over the place uh, in the San Fernando Valley and in other areas as well. So what is the grand plan for this? I absolutely agree. We actually have one of our newest community safety partnership sites in the San Fernando Valley in San Fernando Gardens. Our mission with the Bureau is to embed this philosophy throughout the LAPD and to ensure that there's consistent training and communication centered around the primary mission of this program, which is safe passage to ensure that everybody in the community can come and go in their daily lives without the fear of being victimized, having a a set structure to enhance and build community capacity so that leaders within the community know how to access resources to address the trauma and the post-traumatic stress and to really have a working relationship alongside all of the existing players. 
in a community. That's Imada Tingaridis, Deputy Chief of the LAPD's Community Safety Partnership Bureau. Deputy Chief, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, turning back to the murder trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis. While a jury is going to be asked to decide if the former police officer was at fault for the death of George Floyd, arguments from the prosecution and defense are being broadcast around the country, and that includes some very painful and potentially triggering content. So we're checking in with you, our listeners. If you are following the trial, tell us why and tell us how you're feeling. What kinds of conversations are you having with family and friends around the trial? What significance will the jury's decision have on you? Call us and leave us a message on our voicemail. That's 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. Tell us your name, where you're from, and how we can reach you. You can also share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Take Two, at Take Two. That number, once again, is 626-583-5281, 626-583-5281. It is, it is tough to, to watch that all over again. You know, got to admit, it got to me a little bit as well. So that number, 626-583-5281, 626-583-5281. More Take Two coming up. Stay with us. An unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer, the club that reopened as the only unionized strip club in the U.S. We just had a lot of love for each other. And we solidified that the only way we're going to be able to do something is if we organize together. The strippers behind the headlines and the secret and messy work of unionizing their club. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go cruising to the park, cruising after dark, let's go out, slow it down to five, on an endless drive. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts, I'm e. Martinez. We turn now to the latest in L.A.'s response to homelessness. The county wants to be dropped from an ongoing landmark lawsuit, alleging that both the city and county of Los Angeles have mismanaged the local homelessness crisis. L.A. County has cooperated so far and has committed to creating new beds for unsheltered people by this April, but now the county is asking to be dismissed from the lawsuit entirely. Caught up with L.A. Times reporter Benjamin Oreskes, who has been following the story and broke down L.A. County's argument for dismissal. They feel like it's not a judge's place to be setting or intruding on the, quote, county's legislative process based on untenable legal theories. The point here being this judge, Judge Carter, who has been presiding over this case since last March, is helping sort of set the policy when it comes to the county and city's response to homelessness. And the county, they're the ones who have been elected or have elective representatives, and they feel like this complex policy problem, the response should be handled by them. 
There are other sort of more complicated legal theories about standing that go into this, but that's kind of the long and short of it. So they they think that they should be the ones to handle it because they're doing such a great job of it? The Supreme Court has long believed and cautioned federal courts from sort of interfering with the matters of state and local government in terms of how they set policies. Uh, I'll just read a quote from the, the their argument, their briefs. The, the court may not substitute its own policy judgment for those of elected county officials and usurp the county's discretionary authority. The point being that a judge can block you from doing something, but it, when it comes to him or her telling you to do something, there's a much higher bar that has been set in terms of when and how they can do that. How might Judge Carter rule based on what he's said and done so far? It's anyone's guess. I, I'm really not sure. I, I think that Judge Carter has relished being at the center of these proceedings uh, at various different points. He sort of goaded, challenged, if you will, the city and county to appeal uh, decisions he's made to the Ninth Circuit. At the same time, though, he has to look at the merits of the argument that the county is making right now and make a decision. I think both the county and the city and the plaintiffs are looking for some more concrete action. We have seen these sort of meetups, if you will, uh, that really lack the formality of a court hearing. And I think I have heard from member, you know, plaintiffs, lawyers involved along with elected officials, they're sort of sick of coming in front of Carter, repeating information that's been given to him in court documents and then not seeing any change. This effort by the county, along with the plaintiffs maybe filing for an injunction over the next couple of weeks, are, are ways for that to move this into a process that more closely resembles something that, you know, we're used to seeing in court. The city, county, and plaintiffs have already agreed to create new beds for the unhoused by April. So what happens to that deal if the county succeeds in pulling out of this lawsuit? I don't think it would affect it. That That is a binding term sheet that they agreed to in June. By mid-April, they have to have created 5,300 interventions. Uh, by next year, it'd be 6,000. Uh, this is something that they're going to be funding to the tune of $300 million. That is, the county will fund the services for $300 million as the city constructs these. That money is still moving from one party to another, and I don't think we would expect to see any change there. We're talking to Benjamin Oreskes of the LA Times about the county's attempts to get dismissed from the Judge Carter lawsuit. Uh, Benjamin, taking a look, though, at one neighborhood struggle, uh, LA City Council member Mitch O'Farrell closed Echo Park Lake reportedly for repairs, cleared out uh, the homeless encampment uh, there last week. Protesters returned for a vigil outside the park yesterday, and protesters showed up at City Hall today. What should we be expecting next in this particular saga? The park was closed on 24 hours notice to everyone in Los Angeles. This is an LA landmark that they did not give any advance notice to people living in the neighborhood, uh, to homeless people, to journalists. And for months in advance, they, they were doing lots of outreach work in that park. And they were saying the park could close soon, but they never gave a concrete date. And I think that has frustrated people. So in terms of what happens next, I think you're gonna see a lot of anger about that point. Similarly though, you're going to see a lot of pressure on member elected officials across the county and city who have constituents saying, when are you going to do this in our park or on our boardwalk or on our streets who see this effort and say, wow, it's cleared of homeless people. They're out of our sight and they want that in their neighborhood. Many of them will want it in the most humane way possible, but they still want it. I do think that this was a very unique circumstance, but it still will put many, a lot of pressure on say a Mike Bonin out in Venice 
who has constituents really angry that the Venice boardwalk is full of tents. So I think we can expect a lot of conversation about how this process went and how it might be replicated in other parts of the city. When it comes to the handling of the encampment at Echo Park Lake and, and, it, and how it reflects on L.A.'s approach to homelessness, I'm wondering, since we're talking about Judge Carter anyway, has he made any public inquiry into the situation there at Echo Park Lake? He was curiously silent last week. We did not hear from him uh, in legal filings. We did not hear from him in bromides from a bench. Uh, I, I can tell you that I know he was out of state uh, on vacation with his wife last week. Uh, that doesn't mean he couldn't have weighed in. I know he was watching, but we didn't hear from him. And, and it kind of gets at this larger point about how unconventional his response to homelessness and this case has been, selectively choosing when and where to weigh in. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised in the coming weeks and months in, in the context of his court if we do hear about it. But as of now, we have. That's Benjamin Rescue's general assignment reporter for the L.A. Times on L.A. County's motion to be dismissed from the federal lawsuit on their homelessness response. Ben, as always, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Kemp Powers got a nomination, an Oscar nomination for One Night in Miami, Best Adapted Screenplay. He also wrote and co-directed the Pixar film Soul, and that got nominated for Best Animated Feature. Yeah, Kemp Powers is having a pretty good year. We'll hear from him next on Take Two in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios, wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts, Sammy Martinez. One film that's getting attention this Hollywood Awards season is Soul. It was just nominated for three Oscars, including Best Animated Film, Best Original Score, and Achievement in Sound. The Pixar movie is about a jazz musician named Joe Gardner who lands his big break. Uh, sorry, I zoned out a little back there. <laughs> Joe Gardner, where have you been? I've been uh, teaching middle school band. Uh, th- th- but on the weekends, I... You got a suit? I... Uh... Get a suit, Teach. A good suit. Back here tonight, first show's at 9, sound checks at 7. We'll see how you do. Kim Powers is the co-writer and co-director of Soul. He also wrote and executive produced the Oscar-nominated Amazon movie One Night in Miami, which was based on his own play. Now, when we spoke earlier, I asked him how he got the job on Soul. I got the gig because uh, Pete Docter, the the director and the chief creative officer at Pixar, actually read my play One Night in Miami. So <laughs> wow. it was the, the the stage play of One Night in Miami that put me on his radar. Um, and what caused them to invite me up there to, to Pixar. Generally speaking, for people who don't know, animated films take a lot longer than live action films yeah. to make. And Soul took about four years from original concept to completion of the film. They were just about two years into the process, um, which means that the, the rough structure of the film was there, but it wasn't really a film yet. 
Um, it was, uh, you know, they showed me 2D storyboards. They knew that the main character was going to be a, a jazz musician named Joe Gardner, who, who dies in the beginning. But there wasn't a lot of detail fleshed out. So I initially came on board um, as a writer to really help flesh out the story and help kind of continue cracking the code. Like there still wasn't a third act to the film. Um, and my contributions ended up going kind of like way beyond what they initially asked of me so that, <laughs> you know, my writing job ended up becoming the co-director of the film because I, you know, Pete asked for my contributions for everything from the casting to the character design to, you know, edit to the set design. Um, and it was an incredible opportunity because you understand anytime you see a Pixar film, you are seeing the collective work of 350 people. Mm. And I can't emphasize that enough is that it's as much their film as it is Pete's film or, or my film. But at the same time, I was able to really put so much of my personal life and use it to inform the telling of this story, because it's honestly a story about the meaning of life and our purpose and what we should be doing with our lives, which you can't have a more universal theme than that. But what I love about this film was it, is, it was an opportunity to go on that journey through the prism of a black man, yeah. a black man who coincidentally had a lot in common with me, exact same age, <laughs> from the same city, same interests. So I, I got once I got there and kind of looked at the story they wanted to tell why Pete was specifically interested in me as a human being, <laughs> because I was able to really start kind of filling in the blanks on who this Joe Gardner character was and what his life should um, look like. But, um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a really kind of a transformative experience for me because yeah, working on a, a film like that, it, your dream honestly is to harken back to the great holiday films that have stuck with you. Yeah. And a film that we discussed a lot in the making of soul was it's a wonderful life, you know, yeah, yeah. which um, is, is a film that I don't even think it's a wonderful. I did well when it first came out, but Frank Capra's incredible film, it's kind of dark, but um, It's a Wonderful Life, A Christmas Carol. Um, we actually wondered between ourselves, are we being too corny to have these earnest goals of just trying to help people appreciate the little things in life? And none of us, of course, could have predicted the world we'd find ourselves in and yeah. how much people would find themselves starving for just that kind of story. You mentioned, Kemp, how the main character, Joe, is, is just like you in a lot of ways. And, and I think that's yeah. really important because, you know, Pixar is sort of known for being a largely white male company. I remember when Coco came out, first film with a non-white lead, and I knew uh, just, you know, heading into seeing it that a brown person was involved in the story in the screenplay right. and to me that made of a difference because the authenticity was there on the screen there were too many times during coco uh camp where i i had the goosebumps because that's my grandma that's my uncle yeah you know that's my yeah. family right there so wondering for you to know that you were able to put your stamp on this film a film that uh, you know will last forever obviously because people will be able to see it generations down the line i mean how does that feel for you knowing that your stamp not only just as you Kemp Powers is on the film but you as a black man in America is on that film too oh I mean it's it's really it's it's really humbling to be perfectly honest and, and again it's just I'm not every black man in America or a black person in America it's not and it's not just my stamp it's John Batiste our uh, incredible musician who is the hands of Joe it's his stamp it's Bradford Young, one of our great consultants who helped contribute to the look of the film. We all were able to put our stamp on it. And it's inc it's incredibly humbling because I owned, before I came to work at Pixar, I owned just about every single Pixar film. 
because to me they were works of art yeah. and and they're things that you can rewatch again and again and again and and I never in my wildest dreams um definitely not as a young man but definitely even not when I got into this business imagined that I'd be able to do something that could potentially you know just just be something that would hopefully inspire so many people so so the reaction to the film has has really blown me away because when you're in the trenches and you're working on something like a one night in Miami or a soul I, I I'm to be if I'm being perfectly honest there are days when you wonder if anyone's going to like what you're doing <laughs> you know because you're you've been you've been iterating on it so long you've been going back and forth and you're like is anyone going to even get this film so to see it connect is 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 satisfying in a way that I just no pun. I, I can't. I can't articulate just how satisfying it is. Now, this is going to be for people that uh, saw the film because my wife and I were having discussions about this uh, after we watched it, Camp. So, wondering what? Now I'm just going to throw this question out there for you. Does a spark need to find a purpose, or does a purpose need a spark? Well, a purpose is not a spark. So you you don't need to find a purpose at all to have a spark. A spark is just that you just have to want to come live. You have to. You basically just have to want to come down and be a part of this crazy rat race called life. So yeah, that, that's, that, that's it. They're, they're two, two totally different things. Now for and the, spoiler yeah. alert, you know, that's, that's the, the revelation that our, <laughs> that our character has to, to, to come to by, by the end of the film. For the people that have seen soul, you know what I mean? If you haven't go see soul and then you will understand. Ken Powers is the writer and an executive producer of one night in Miami. He's also the co-writer and a co-director of the Pixar movie soul. It's on Disney plus Ken. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And you can read more about how Kemp went from journalism to Hollywood and more on one night in Miami at LAist.com. All right, tonight for the first time ever, USC and UCLA will play in the Elite Eight round of the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament. It's a unique spot for LA sports fans with ties to either school. Can the Trojans and Bruins set aside their general distaste for one another because there could be something really cool on the horizon? Now, a win for both means they'd square off against each other in the Final Four this weekend. But as the sports cliche goes, you got to take it one game at a time. So let's start with the first game of the night, West Region, Gonzaga versus the US. USC Trojans. All right, USC is trying to be the first team to beat Gonzaga all season as the Bulldogs are a perfect 29-0 as the highest scoring team in the nation, averaging just under 90 points per game and the unanimous number one ranked team. Top seed of the tourney as well. Big thing going for the Trojans is their efficiency as they're one of only three teams to shoot over 50% on their three points attempt this season. And watch out for USC's freshman seven-footer, Evan Mobley. He leads the team at 16 points per game. Now for the nightcap game. East Region, Michigan versus the UCLA Bruins. UCLA has a record 11 NCAA basketball titles. Their last one, though, was way back in 1995. This season's Bruins limped into the tournament. Four-game losing streak were down to Michigan State by 11 at halftime of their opener before winning it in overtime. They're also coming off uh, another overtime thriller in their win over Alabama on Sunday. So the Bruins have hit a bit of this cardiac kid's karma going for them. But we'll see because here's the thing. Both teams are underdogs, heavy underdogs in their two games. It would be great, though, because you never know how the ball is going to bounce if both teams could give L.A. a really unique weekend by having both teams play in the Final Four. 
Hopefully, that'll happen. Tip-off for Gonzaga USC is at 4.15. UCLA versus Michigan right after that at around 7 o'clock. Luckily for me, I didn't go to USC or UCLA, so I want both teams to win, and I'll be happy if both do. That's going to do it for Take 2. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Take 2. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. Take 2 tomorrow.